passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Reality TV may seem like a worn-out genre to us, but in, all, in the grand scheme of things, it's really still pretty young. It wasn't until the early 2000s, until it started to take hold, until we started to see, it seemed like a different uh, sort of reality TV show on virtually every channel. We have music competitions like American Idol. You have uh, feats of endurance and very harsh elements like uh, Survivor, or you see the inner workings of some of your more eccentric families like uh, Keeping Up with the Kardashians or Duck Dynasty. Not that I'm uh, saying that you should go watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians by any means. But it seems like all of these reality TV shows focus, even though their focus is relatively diverse, they seem to, to land on one thing that unites them all together, and that is really the dysfunction of human relationships. Some of the times it can be funny and in a very, uh, you know, safe way, like in Duck Dynasty, and other times it can just show dysfunction that is just ugly. It shows us the brokenness of the human spirit. And reality TV seems to love focusing on these broken relationships, on the dysfunction of human relationships. And this morning's text is essentially the first reality TV show. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 27, a story, a chapter that tells us the dysfunction of one family in a way that most TV executives would be chomping at the bit to, long, uh, to ink to a long-term deal. It is the story of Isaac and his sons. It is a story of betrayal, of deception, of millions of dollars at stake, and even murderous threats being breathed out from one brother to another. It is a story that many of us are likely familiar with, It is the story of Jacob deceiving his father by dressing up as Esau to steal his brother's blessing. See, over the past few weeks, we've been working our way through the lives of Isaac and Rebekah, studying this family, and we've seen the strife that exists between their children in Genesis chapter 25. We've seen some great, uh, terrible moral failures on the behalf of Isaac, and yet also some wonderful repentance in Genesis chapter 26. And as we turn to Genesis chapter 20, we look at this infamous story. We look at this story of dysfunction, and we wonder what's going on here. In fact, as we study this passage, this story of deception, of lies, of selfishness, I just want you to have one question that you're going to keep in the back of your minds this entire time. Who's the bad guy? Who's at fault in this entire story? Or let's let's spin it and look at this from the positive. Who's the hero? Who's the heroine in this story? At the very least, who should we feel sorry for? Got it? Who's at fault? Who's the good guy? Who should we feel sorry for as we look at this passage? Perhaps it's Jacob that we're supposed to blame. After all, Jacob is the one who deceived his father. Or maybe it's Rebecca, the puppet master behind the scenes, orchestrating this entire thing. Perhaps we should feel sorry for Esau, the one who has, his, uh, who has things stolen from him by his brother once again. Or Isaac, a poor old man who has gone blind, that's taken advantage of by his wife and by his son. Who is to blame? Who is at fault? Let's take a look at Genesis 27 and find out. 
Genesis 27 starts with Isaac, and it seems like Isaac is on his deathbed. Now, we know from later on that he's not on his deathbed. He's probably got another at least 30 years in his life, but he's sick. He knows the fragility of life, and so he, he brings, uh, it brings to mind the, the, the reality that the promise that he's been given as a child of Abraham, that he needs to pass that promise on to one of his sons. As he's nearing the end of his life, as he feels just how uncertain things are, he decides that it's time to pass on the mantle of patriarch to his heir. And so Isaac calls Esau, his firstborn, to him in private. And they begin to have a discussion about how uh, he wants to to bless Esau. But first he wants Esau to, to hunt for him, to prepare this delicious meal that Esau is so well known for after so many years of living together. And he wants to bless Esau with the privileges and the responsibilities of running this family. And Esau just jumps at the opportunities. He's so excited to be finally given what he has dreamed about. What he thought was his destiny. And so he runs off excited to go hunting. Of course, there's just one problem. What was supposed to be a private meeting is not so private. After all, tent walls aren't exactly soundproof. And Rebecca overhears this conversation. And Isaac may intend on blessing Esau, but Rebecca has other plans. After all, Rebecca had been told before Isaac's, or excuse me, before Esau's birth and before Jacob's birth that Jacob would be superior. That Esau, the older, would serve the younger, Jacob. And she sees it's what's happening and she looks at this urgent situation and she wastes no time calling her son to, prevent, or to present her counter plan to her son Jacob. And so she begins to tell him about what's going on, about how his father and about how his brother Esau are trying to bless Esau with the privileges of being the heir. And and as she tells him this story, she begins to tell her own plan about how they're going to counteract this. She says, we have an opportunity right now. We have an opportunity while Esau is out hunting. And so Jacob, I want you to go bring me some goats and I will prepare them the way that he likes. I know after decades of cooking for him, how to prepare food just the way he likes. And so bring me some goats. But Jacob objects. And Jacob objects not from any sort of moral reservation about the uh, evils of deceiving his father. He objects because he's afraid he's going to get caught. He says, you know what? Esau has been weathered by decades of living outside. I have very smooth skin. If dad touches me, he's going to know that I'm not Esau. But Rebecca says, you know what, son, I've taken care of it. I've thought through that. Just go get me the goats. And so he goes and gets the goats. And while she is doing that, or excuse me, while he is doing that, she sneaks into Esau's room and steals some of his clothes. After all, Esau is a man who lived before showers and spent most of his time outside. And Esau certainly had a distinct smell. And it was a part of the plan for Esau's clothes to be worn by Jacob. This is a heist that Danny Ocean from Ocean's Eleven would be proud of. It is the perfect plan to steal the blessing from Esau. Rebecca has thought of nearly everything. And if Jacob can just do his part, this plan will go off without a hitch. Let's pick up in verse 18 to see how things turn out. 
So he, being Jacob, went into his father and said, My father. And his father said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answers, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother, like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it nearer to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. You know, it's a pity that Isaac has lost his sight, because I'm sure the sight of Jacob would have been quite comical to behold. Here's a man dressed in clothes that were way too big big for him, strapped onto his wrist and onto his neck, goat skins of a freshly slaughtered goat, awkwardly carrying food and wine into his father's room. The sight would have been so comical if it wasn't so sad. You see, Isaac's sight was going bad, but his hearing had not started to go bad. And so when he sees his son, or excuse me, when he hears his son say, my father, he recognizes that as the voice of Jacob. And he begins to wonder, what is Jacob doing here? And he thinks to himself, I have to get Jacob out of here before Esau returns, before Jacob understands what is going on here. But the one who sounded like Jacob claimed to be Esau. And so Isaac, unable to trust his eyes and now wondering if he really can even trust his ears, asks this young man to draw near. And he thinks that his sense of touch is going to be able to answer the question. But unfortunately, his sense of touch is fooled as well. Isaac is thoroughly confused. And he asks his son one more time, Are you really Esau? It's almost as if he is begging Jacob. He's pleading with Jacob to come clean. To reveal himself as Jacob and not as Esau. But Jacob doesn't say what we had all hoped. He says again that he is Esau. And then we see this change in Isaac. We don't know if it's because Isaac is satisfied or if he's just too hungry to care about whether this is really Esau, but he just asks for the food. And ironically, what we've seen so far is Isaac's sight, Isaac's hearing, and Isaac's touch have been deceived. And now this man who says that he loves his son's wild game, that there's nothing that tastes like it, his taste is deceived as well. He can't tell any difference between some domesticated goats prepared by his wife and the wild game that he claimed to love so much. And after he is finished eating, he asks his son to draw near, hoping that one final test will reveal if this is truly his son Esau. The sense of smell. So he brings Esau or he brings Jacob forward, and and Isaac is again deceived by his wife's foresight as she smells Esau's clothing and and, and begins to overpower him. From that moment, he issues his blessing. Pick up in verse 26 of this chapter. 
Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the, fam- of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let the people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and your mother's sons. How- may they bow down to you. And cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Notice this blessing that we see here. There are really two aspects. First, Isaac blesses his son with prosperity, with material prosperity. He says, I want to give you with everything that I have. May God give you the fatness of the earth. May God give you the dew of heaven. May God give you plenty of grain and wine. That's the first thing he he blesses him with, material prosperity. Second, he blesses him with great authority. He says, may this man rule over many. May this man subdue nations. Let him be exalted over his family. And he ends with a very familiar uh, language of cursing and blessing. That those who curse his son may be cursed and those who bless his son may be blessed. He's ending with the promise of Abraham from Genesis chapter 12. He's ending promising that this young son will be the heir that God has ordained. The one that the promise will continue to be reckoned through. And so Jacob is blessed with all this. He's blessed with material prosperity. He's blessed with supremacy. He's given the Abrahamic blessing. The plan of Rebekah has succeeded to a T. And Jacob departs. Of course, Jacob departs not a moment too soon because Esau shortly enters the room for his blessing. But he is too late. When Esau enters the room, Isaac realizes what he has done and he begins to tremble with anger at his son Jacob. And Esau begins to weep at the loss of this blessing. He pleads with Isaac for his own blessing, but Isaac refuses. After all, there's nothing left. He's given every single thing to Jacob. He has nothing left to offer to his son. And Esau continues to press into Isaac, asking him over and over for a blessing. And so finally, Isaac relents and he he offers this blessing, but it's the exact opposite of the blessing that he has given to his son, Jacob. Instead of material prosperity, he blesses his son Esau with scarcity. Instead of being exalted over the nations, instead of being supreme, he is given the task of being a servant to his brother. What started out as a beautiful, perfect day, the day that Esau had longed for, has now become his lowest point yet. He's understandably angry. See, years earlier, his brother coerced his birthright out of him, and now he's deceived into taking his blessing from him as well. And Esau vows revenge. In fact, he says that the moment his father dies, he's going to take it upon himself to kill Jacob. And once he kills Jacob, then he'll have the blessing. Then he'll have the birthright that Jacob had taken from him. But thank goodness Rebecca is listening in on this story and on this thinking that he has. And she begins aware of this secret thought again. And she saves her son by sending Jacob to Haran, to her brother Laban. 
And she thinks to herself, well, he'll be safe there for a few months until his brother calms down, and then he'll be able to return home. And that's how this passage ends. It ends with the task of sending Jacob to Laban, hundreds of miles away. As you hear this story, as you read this story, who is at fault? Who is at fault here? Who is the one who incurs guilt before God for all their actions? The answer is, it's all of them. It's obvious that Rebekah and Jacob are guilty before God. But the reality is, Isaac and Esau are just as guilty, if not more guilty, before God. Let's take a look at each family member and see how they are guilty before God. See how they contrive evil before God here. First, let's look at Rebekah. Rebekah is one of the easier ones to figure out. After all, Rebekah is the mastermind in, in plotting this whole thing before her son Jacob. But before we jump into the passage, let's, let's go back several decades to Genesis chapter 25. Let's remember what has happened to Rebekah at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 25, verses 21 through 23. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Decades before, even before the birth of Esau and Jacob, Rebekah has been given this prophecy from God that the older will serve the younger. This is not just a prediction. This is just a prophecy from God. She's heard this from God. It's undoubtedly shaped the rest of her life. It's always at the front of her mind when she's interacting with her two sons. The older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. No wonder she favors her son Jacob. It's because the older shall serve the younger. This is a prophecy that she has waited for God to fulfill for decades. And she's waited and she's waited and waited for God to come through, for God to answer his prophecy, to fulfill his promise. And then one day she hears her husband talking to her other son, Esau. She overhears this plan about Esau becoming the heir. And this isn't just simply a moment of disagreement where Isaac wanted to make Esau the heir and, and Rebekah wanted to make Jacob the heir. For Rebekah, she is looking at this situation. She's looking at this discussion between her son and her husband. And she looks at this as a very attack upon God. An attack upon what God has predicted. In a very real sense, Rebecca sees this as her responsibility to fix. God is being attacked. God's plans are being attacked by her husband. And she has to do something about it. The possibility of Esau becoming blessed cannot happen. Because God has said otherwise. Of course, what Rebecca decides to do isn't exactly the most admirable. She decides to have her son lie to her sick husband. She decides to steal something from her other son. 
She tricks her husband into making the right decision, but for Rebecca, the ends justify the means. For Rebecca, the ends justify the means. She's willing to do one or two things that God wouldn't approve of in order to make sure that God's word stands. For Rebecca, the ends justify the means. Of course, this is unacceptable for Christians today. If we look at when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, one of the temptations that Satan gave to him, that Satan told him, it says, if you simply just bow down to me, I will give you the nations. This is really what Jesus came to earth for, to save the nations. And here Satan is offering him a shortcut. He's saying you can avoid the cross You can avoid pain. You can avoid suffering. You can even avoid your own death. Just take the shortcut. The ends justify the means. But what did Jesus do? Did he look up at heaven and say, you know what, God, he's got a pretty good point. The ends justify the means. No. The ends never justify the means. You see, the reality is Rebecca saw herself as the one who had the sole responsibility for standing up for God. She was the only person who could stand up for God and his word. If she did not intervene, even in an immoral way, God's promise would be ruined. And she could not let that happen. And so she took it upon herself to take care of God. Sounds kind of ridiculous when you put it that way, doesn't it? Sounds kind of ridiculous that she thinks that it is her responsibility to take care of God, to protect God. But it highlights the central question. For Rebecca, the question isn't ultimately about deceiving her son. It isn't ultimately about deceiving her husband. It is ultimately about God and his word. Does Rebecca believe that God is able to keep his promises by himself? Is God able to take care of himself? You see, for Rebecca, this was ultimately a question of whether she believed God. Whether she believed that God was powerful enough, that he was strong enough to do what he said that he would do no matter what. And for Rebecca, the question was answered with a resounding no. God is not able to do this, and so I must step in. And I must help him. I think Christians today have a tendency to act like Rebecca more often than we would like to think. Especially when it comes to the realm of social action. You see today an increased hostility of our culture against the church. And we have a tendency to panic. Though we would never admit it. I think many of us deep down subconsciously wonder if God is really in control. We wonder if God is really able to keep his promises. We wonder if we should actually be there defending God. That instead of trusting that God is in charge, we respond to a culture of hostility with our own hostility. If you have been around over the last couple weeks haven't been hiding under a rock, you are probably aware of the boycott target movement. And I want to say something relatively controversial right now. What if the boycott target movement is unbiblical? 
What if that is the exact same thing that Rebecca is doing right here in this passage? For those of you who don't know, uh, Target issued a, a statement um, reaffirming their policy to allow anyone to use whatever bathroom that uh, aligns with their gender identity uh, as a response to recent legislation passed in a number of states. And in response, a number of people from a, a more conservative uh, political bend have decided that they are going to boycott Target. And on the surface, what it seems to be is that the majority of people are boycotting Target because they claim a threat to their safety. They claim a threat to the safety of their children, and that's all fine and good. I think that that is responsible to make sure that you take care of your children, make sure that you find that they are safe. Of course, Target's policy has not changed, if I'm speaking correctly. You could just go into the bathroom with your children. You could just use the family bathroom, but agree to disagree if that's the focus here. But I think reality is something different. Underneath the surface of this, this uh, veneer of saying that we want to protect ourselves, we want to be safe, is a different reason for why all these boycotts are happening. You see, I think the reason why people are boycotting is because they are in fight or flight mode. For decades, we as Christians have been frustrated with the direction our culture is heading ever since the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Everything that we are experiencing today can be rooted back into the 1960s. And Target is literally a target for decades of pent-up frustration, for decades of bitterness, for decades of feeling threatened by culture, for feeling threatened that people don't value the word of God. And to be honest, I don't blame people. I have reached the breaking point myself. I am sympathetic to those who desire to defend God and defend his word. After all, that's one of the reasons why I became a pastor. But ends do not justify the means. In fact, I think that oftentimes they do more harm than they do good. When Christians choose to boycott Target, they look more like jerks to those who desperately need Jesus. They don't look like they are compassionate. The ends, standing up for biblical morals, do not justify the means of hostility that we so often see. We cannot be a people of hostility and anger using the exact same tools that the culture and that the world use to accomplish God's purposes. We must be a people of compassion. Now, I'm not at all saying that we cannot stand up for our rights. That is not at all what I'm saying Religious liberty is guaranteed in the Bill of, Bill of Rights. I think that there are several other issues that are happening in our culture, in our country today, that are egregious affronts to our religious liberty. But this is not an issue of religious liberty. This is simply not an issue of religious liberty. I don't think that Target's policy has changed. And Rebecca is faced with a question that is also facing us. Do we trust God or not? Do we trust that God is able to take care of himself or not? Do we trust that God is able to take care of things? Or do we have to step in and help him out? You see, you look at where Rebecca ends up after taking these actions. She sins to get what she wants. It appears that she gets it at first. After all, Jacob is the one who is blessed. But if you look at the end of the story, Jacob has to flee. 
Jacob, her favorite son, the one that she has done everything for, the one that she loves, is told to flee. She hopes that it's only for a few days, only for a few months, but in reality, he has gone for over 20 years. She never sees her beloved son again. Sin never pays. Even when it feels good. Even when it feels good to retaliate. Even when we get what we want, sin never pays. It's a lesson that Rebecca had to learn the hard way because she did not trust God. So ask yourself, do you trust God as well? Or must you stand in and defend him like Rebecca thought she had to? That's Rebecca's greatest fault. An inability to trust God, an inability to trust God's uh, ability to keep his promises. And in some ways, Rebecca is the most admirable of every single person in this story. And, and I, I use that loosely. So when we read the rest of the story, we see that Rebecca isn't the only one who screws up, the only one who sins. We look at Isaac. And sometimes when we read this passage, we see Isaac as someone who's just an old man who's a victim, who's taken advantage of by his wife and his son. But that's not the case. Let's take a look at this story a little closer. Isaac would have been someone who would have been just as aware of the prophecy in Genesis 25 as Rebecca. But unlike Rebecca, who does everything in her power to make sure this prophecy comes through, he ignores it. He goes his own way. He looks at what God has said and he turns his back on it. He says, this is what I want. I want Esau to be the heir. I don't care if it lines up with what God has said, with what God has promised, with what God wants. I'm going to do what I want. Every single thing that Isaac does here reeks of sin. Instead of blessing Jacob as God has declared, he decides to instead bless Esau. He even knows that this is wrong. The blessing of a son should have been done in public. should have been a great celebration for every single part of the family. It should have been a great meal, a wonderful time where every single person is involved. But Isaac does this behind closed doors. Isaac does this in secret, out of the public's eye, behind Jacob's back, because he knows that he's doing something wrong, and he wants to hide it. Even more than that, if he's really on his deathbed like he thinks he is, he should have blessed all of his children. You look at Abraham right before he dies, he blesses every single one of his children. You look at Jacob at the end of the book of Genesis, right before he dies, he blesses every single one of his children. And yet here is Isaac only blessing Esau, or so he thinks. And then you look at the content of this blessing. And just in your own time, reread this blessing from the perspective of what Jacob, excuse me, what Isaac is saying about Esau, who he thinks that he is blessing. He says that Esau will rule over Jacob, even though God has said that Isaac excuse me, that Jacob would rule over Esau. Isaac defiantly thumbs up his nose at God, gives the blessings that are meant for Jacob to Esau. He uses the language of the Abrahamic promise. He says that the promise that my father was given from God, that he then gave to me, I am now giving to Esau. 
He is completely, utterly turning his back on God. The brashness here of Isaac is disgusting. And we got to wonder what happened. What happened to this man who trusted God so much that he allowed himself to be tied to an altar in Genesis 22? What happened to this man who trusted God rather than fleeing to Egypt to escape famine in Genesis 26? What happened to this man who showed God's presence when he responded with repentance and holy living in Genesis chapter 26? What happened? The key is found in verses 3 and 4. Notice what it says. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love. And bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. The picture here of Isaac is not just a man who is blind, but a man who is completely and utterly controlled by his appetites. Someone who over the course of his life has continued to give in little by lit to this, little by the small pleasures of this world. Pleasures like Esau's great food. He feeds his appetite more and more and his appetite grows more and more and eventually he creates his own God. More accurately, he creates his own prison. The reason why he rejects the word of God? Well, the reason why he rejects the word of God is because God is not his God. Esau is his God. Food is his God. Pleasure is his God. And if we know one thing about idolatry, it is this. People will do anything for their gods. People will do anything, including turn their back on what God has said in order to serve the God that they worship. And that's exactly what Isaac does here. Isaac, who was once a great man of faith, is now simply a shell of a, of a man. His faith has atrophied over time by daily choosing to kill it and feed other appetites. To worship other gods. And how often do we do the same? How often do we let our faith atrophy? How often do we choose not to pray one time and instead give in to a little pleasure? And soon our faith dwindles down into nothing because we are consumed by other gods. As you look at this story, do not pity Isaac. Isaac got exactly what he deserved. Just like Rebekah, Isaac's sin did not pay. So we look at Rebekah, we look at Isaac, we see that they're heavily blemished, but what about Esau? After all, Esau has, has this a sense of someone that we should feel sorry for. He's crying in the middle of the story. He's been tricked again by his brother. We say, poor Esau, but he's just as guilty. Remember, in Genesis chapter 25, Esau sold his birthright. And the birthright and the blessing, they are connected. If you lose one, then you've lost the other as well. The fact that he's meeting in secret with his dad shows that he's attempting to steal it back. He's attempting to deceive his brother to get his inheritance back. But as we look at this passage, we see that Esau doesn't understand what the inheritance means. Last week, we looked at Genesis 26, but we skipped over the last two verses, verses 34 and 35. And they seem kind of out of place as we read this. But it says this. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the wife of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac 
and Rebecca. These words serve as a sort of prologue to Genesis chapter 27. They show us why Esau is not to be pitied. It's because he's getting exactly what he deserves. He continues to reject the word of God. He continues to reject the promise of God. In a bygone era, people have used these verses to prohibit interracial marriage. And God forgive us for that. What is at view here is not interracial marriage. What is in view here is interreligious marriage. Esau is condemned because he marries a pagan. God had called Abraham to be set apart. And God had called Isaac to be set apart. And God had called the people of God to be set apart, to not be a part of the surrounding nations, to remain unstained from them. And the fact that Esau intermarries with those who are not of God shows that he doesn't really care. His heart wants what it wants, and so he marries some pagans. He turns his back on God, and he marries two of them, turning his back again on God's original plan. God does not want to be mocked, and Esau is doing that with every single one of his actions. Esau does not understand the promise. Esau does not understand the calling that has been given to his grandfather, Abraham. He doesn't understand the responsibilities of being an heir, and he acts accordingly. Esau, just like Isaac, should not be pitied. In fact, he's just like his father Isaac. He gets exactly what he deserves. Nothing. Sin does not pay. And last, we turn to Jacob, the deceiver. Even the most generous reading of this passage does not paint Jacob into a good life good light. He is only concerned with himself. He has no qualms with leaving his brother with nothing. He's not willing to wait on God to fulfill his promises to him. He has no issues with deceiving his sick, blind father. Jacob outright lies three times when his father is talking to him. Twice his father asks, are you Esau? And twice he is given the chance to come clean. He's given the chance to repent To show that he wants to receive the blessing the way God intends for him. And twice he rejects and refuses that opportunity. But that's not even the most grievous lie. The most grievous lie is sandwiched in between these other two. Let's reread verse 20. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. In order to deceive his father, he invokes the name of God. In order to deceive his father, he brings God into this lie. He has the same contempt for God as his father Isaac does. He uses that name flippantly as a part of a lie. This is blasphemy. This is the most grievous sin of Israel. To call him a deceiver is simply being generous. This is a man who has a cold, black heart. This is a man who will take advantage of anyone and everyone, including God, in order to get what he wants. And that's what happens. He gets exactly what he wants for a moment. But then he's shipped off to Haran with nothing but the clothes on his back. Because he was unwilling to wait for God, he lost the inheritance that was meant for him. Sin does not 
pay. As we look at this story, as we look at our spiritual ancestors, the fathers of our faith, the mother of our faith, we ask the question, who's to blame? Well, we could blame Isaac for his lack of self-control and his irreverence for the, uh, for the word of God. We could look at Esau, the man who has completely rejected the promise that God had issued. We could look at Rebekah, the one who doubts. We could look at Jacob, the one who is just completely selfish. Who is to blame? All of them. No one is a hero in this story. No one is a hero in this story except God. You see, you notice behind the scenes that God is curiously silent. He is silent, and yet he remains faithful. He remains gracious to this family long after they've turned their backs. Long after they show no desire to follow God, but instead try to manipulate God. I think we can learn a lot from this passage. We can learn a lot from this passage because in the midst of our sin, we can know this, that God is completely and unwaveringly committed to his promise and to his people. Even when we sin, even in the depths of our sin, when we enter into our sin and we want nothing to do with God, or whether we think that God wants nothing to do with us, we can be assured that God is completely and unwaveringly committed to his promise and to us, the people of his promise. Genesis 27 reminds us that God is committed to his promise. We look at this passage and we wonder why on earth God didn't just start over. Why God didn't just wipe the slate clean and start over. Why is God patient? Why is it that God remains with them? It's because God is completely and unwaveringly committed to his promise and to his people no matter what. You might say, well, why? Why does he remain committed to Jacob? Why does he remain committed to Isaac after this? Why is God committed to us when we are selfish, when we doubt, when we despise him, when we despise his promises? The answer is found in a descendant of Jacob. See, just like Jacob, this descendant dressed up in someone else's clothes, but it wasn't the clothes of Esau. It was garments that were given to him by Roman soldiers to mock him. In this passage, in verse 13, Rebecca says this to Jacob to calm his fears. She says this, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my verse, voice and go bring them to me. You want to know why God is committed to you, even when you sin? It's because Jesus said those exact same words to you and to me. Let your curse be on me. And he bore that curse indeed. But he did not bear that curse in order to rob us of our blessing like Jacob did. He bore that curse that we deserved so that he could give us his blessing. See, if you look at the, the story of Scripture... Jesus is the Son of God, and we, as God's adopted children, are his younger brothers, his younger sisters. Jesus is our elder brother. He is the one who can receive the inheritance of God. 
and yet because he was worthy. He has allowed each and every one of us to share in his inheritance, to share in his blessing in every single way that Isaac and Esau and Jacob and Rebekah fail. Jesus succeeded. Why is God faithfully committed to you? It's because of the cross. Why is God unwavering in his commitment to you? It's because of the cross. Even though we are just as dysfunctional as these four, God is faithful. When we fail him, when we sin, we can rest in this good news. That when we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Friends, God is unwaveringly committed to you. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how unfaithful you are. God remains faithful. And so ask yourself, how will you respond? How will you respond to the faithfulness of God? Will you respond like Abraham? Will you respond like Isaac when he is caught in Genesis chapter 26 and responds in repentance? Will you respond the exact same way that Jacob does in a few chapters as God gets a hold of him and won't let go? Or will you respond like these four here? God is unwaveringly committed to you. How will you respond? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the truth that it brings, the, the things that it says to us and the assurance that it gives. I pray that even as we sin, that we would rest in the truth that you are committed to us. Help us, God. Give us the strength to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.